Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. Merry Christmas to y'all once again. And um, we are uh, ending our series this week. Um, we've been in, in this Advent series. Advent is the time where we, we kind of, in anticipation, uh, look towards the scriptures that talk about the birth of Christ as we uh, come through December up to the birth of Christ. And uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this evening. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you have your phones with you, type to Matthew uh, chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. And uh, what we've been doing in this series, I think it's been really fun. Uh, we've been kind of looking at um, the moments before the birth of Jesus that prophesied about the birth of Jesus. Um, these signs that pointed towards Jesus. We've called this series Signs Point. And what we've been actually looking at is these different prophetic moments about the Messiah coming, about Jesus coming, um, we've been asking, what do these signs say about the person, Jesus? As they point to Jesus, do they talk about his character? Do they talk about his purpose? What do they say about the person, Jesus? So uh, we're gonna look, we're, we're out of the Old Testament, we're gonna into the New. Now we're gonna look at Matthew chapter two, and a very familiar passage for most of you, uh, but let's jump into it this evening. Matthew two, verse one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Notice that he was disturbed. Verse four, when he had called together all the people's uh, chief priests and teachers of the law, so he gets all these Jewish people together, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse seven, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Notice that. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. If there are a list of, if there was a list of beloved characters in the Christmas story, the Magi certainly make 
the list. And here's why these guys are so intriguing. The word magi um, can mean wise man or priest, uh, someone who's an expert in astrology. These guys are, are following a star. They're looking to the, to the stars for direction. Um, it can mean somebody who does interpretation of, of dreams and various other occult arts. And it can be translated and often is translated sorcerer. Sorcerer. What are sorcerers doing <laughs> at the birth of Jesus Christ. <laughs> You're like, my parents didn't even let me read Harry Potter. And there's a sorcerer <laughs> at Jesus' birth? I mean, really, like, this is kind of strange. But here's the thing. We actually see men who sound like these guys all the way back in the book of Daniel. Remember, we talked about Daniel a couple weeks ago. Here's just a moment from Daniel where we see these same sorts of people. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. So there were magi in Babylon. That's interesting. And here's another thing. We know from this text that these magi, these magicians or these sorcerers are from the east. And in the biblical mind, you have to understand when it says they're from the east, the east reminds an Israeli of one city that's in the east, Babylon, where their entire nation had been carried into exile years previous, where the book of Daniel takes place, Babylon. So the question that a lot of scholars have when they approach these magi is this, could these men be from Babylon? And if they're from Babylon, what made them come to Israel, to Jerusalem of all places? Could it be that these men were influenced by the prophecy and dreams of Daniel and they're looking for that Daniel 7 son of man who will rule and shepherd the people Israel? I mean, imagine for a moment a remnant of sorcerers <laughs> knowing the power of the, of the God of the Jews, seeing what the God of the Jews did through Daniel in their time, passing down stories to ne the next generation of Magi, saying, you know, there's never been a sorcerer like this guy, Daniel. There's never been somebody like Daniel. His God is the most powerful God. And so they're in search of the, this king of the Jews, this son of man, the son of God. There's good reason to believe that this is actually the case, that these magi came from the east, came from Babylon, living off of the prophesied promises of Daniel. Now, one thing that just kind of rocks me about this story is that the magi were the first Gentiles to worship Jesus. They're the first Gentiles in a long line uh, that now includes me and includes many of you um, and most modern Christians to worship Jesus. Not only were they the first Gentiles to worship Jesus, but they were really the first people in general to worship Jesus. So think about how prophetic this act is for the future church. This person, this person Jesus, this child will one day tear down any racial barriers between Jew and Gentile and the rest and all are welcome to worship him. I mean, I mean, actually think about this. These, at the birth of Jesus, there's sorcerers, and then there's shepherds, who were the ones who recognized the prophetic signs about his coming. So you have the lowest class of the Jews, the absolute bottom of the Jews, and then you have the furthest Gentiles, and they're the ones who recognize the king and worship him. How, how powerful is that? 
There's a whole sermon there. But for, for tonight, what I want to do is I want to talk about the two responses the Magi had to the sign of the star and to the Messiah this evening. The two responses that these Magi had. The text says this, when they, st- when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed. In the birth story, um, all of the good characters believe that the Messiah coming was reason for joy, and all the bad characters get anxious about the coming of the Messiah. (laughs) Like Herod. In fact, Herod gets so anxious that he goes on a genocidal killing spree just trying to eliminate this Messiah. He definitely believed that this baby would be powerful. The reality of the story of Jesus continues today. Those with a political vision for the earth get fearful about Jesus, but those in need of God get happy. How do you come into the kingdom? You recognize you need it. How does anybody come into the kingdom? They recognize they lack something that the kingdom could provide. Recognizing need for God is the crack in our false armor where the kingdom can sneak in. And so this story of these magi is really what inspired this entire series. The magi had the ability to see a sign, to follow that sign, and explore it even at their own peril because they had a need. They recognized a need. They also didn't despise the small beginning. I mean, it's simply a baby that they worshipped. It wasn't this grand or glorious king that came down and full of armor and power. It was a baby. It was a child. Because they recognized that the sign pointed not only to the baby, but the potential of the baby. This is the first lesson of the Magi. Look for signs and don't ignore the small stuff. Look for signs and don't ignore the small stuff. When I was uh, young, I think I was probably around, I don't know, my mom could probably tell. Um, I was probably around the, I was probably around eight, and I really got into skateboarding. I was obsessed with skateboarding. That's all that I thought about. I, all I thought about was I had my little, C, some of you who know skateboarding know the CCS catalog. I was flipping through my CCS catalog, circling things for my grandma. This is what I want for Christmas. And I was just obsessed with skateboarding. So much so that anywhere that we drove, you know, I'd be sitting in the backseat with my parents, anywhere that we drove, um, uh, the world had just opened up to new possibilities. So I'd I'd be driving down the street and I would see a curb. And I wouldn't just think, oh, that's for keeping cars in the road. I would think, what what do I do on that curb with my skateboard? How would I grind the curb? How would I ollie off the curb or whatever? I would see a handrail or I'd see a set of stairs or I'd see uh, concrete that had been poured and curved in a specific direction. And I would just be thinking about, oh, what, what could I do there? What could I, could I do on that? I, I began to see all terrain differently. Everything looked different to me than, than everybody else. And what looked ordinary to many, to me, became places of endless possibility. This is what God intends to happen when you get the Holy Spirit. The entire life focus of a believer is heaven coming to earth, right? Jesus told us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. He gave our lives a direction. That's what we're aiming for. We have no right to change the direction of our lives or to aim for anything else, he said, on earth as it is in heaven. So we say, okay, in everything, that's what we're aiming for. And when you have that life aim, that directional focus, it means that you're going to see 
all of life and all of creation and all of your existence very, very differently. What looks ordinary to many actually could be a prophetic sign of what God intends to do in a specific place. I remember when we um, planted the church, um, I was telling Andoni about Newburgh. I, my wife and I, we felt really called to come here and to plant this church. And, uh, but we had really made this commitment that we were gonna do ministry with Andoni and we were gonna do ministry with Jake and their wives. And uh, so we kind of had some convincing to do. I remember we flew down to, to Reading to hang out with you guys and tell you guys about the church. And it was an easy sell to Becky. I think she picked us up from the airport. We're like, hey, we want to plant a church in, in Newburgh. She's like, sounds great. <laughs> and I remember I was telling Andoni, I was like, yeah, we want to plant this church in, in this place called Newburgh. He's like, where's that? <laughs> We were all living in Portland at the time, and Andoni's from Mexico City. He didn't really move from Mexico City to live in Newburgh. He moved from Mexico City to live in another big city like Portland. And so I knew I had, I had my work cut out for me. And I was like, I, I gave it a few weeks. I was like, you know, I just really feel like the Lord's going to do something here. And so anyways, I, uh, do you want to, Georgie, you could come up here and you could share if you want, baby. Um, anyways, I, I told him about it, and I gave him a couple weeks. And, I, and a couple weeks go by, and he comes to me, and he goes, he, he, all I get is this text, Newburgh, it means the new city. <laughs> this is very Andoni. It means the new city. And I'm like, yeah, Newburgh, I guess Berg could mean like city, new city. He's like, it's the new heavens, new earth. I'm like, okay. And then he goes, he's like, and 99 runs through the center of it. He leaves the 99 for the one. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I'm like, okay, yeah. He's not here to get any of this, so Lorna just receive it for him. Um, but I remember what Andoni said. He says, Newburgh will become an example of the presence and love of God turning a normal city into a city on a hill. What is very normal, how many of us have driven down 99? What's very normal, how many of us have seen the name Newburgh, is actually, potentially, a sign pointing to the inbreaking of God's kingdom for a specific place and a specific people. Does anybody have eyes? Let them see. God intends to use the physical to point to a greater reality of heaven on earth. And if we shut our eyes to the, to the signs that he has around us or to the small things that he may or be doing around us, we actually are shutting ourselves off to participation in heaven coming. Um, many of you have probably been to, um, well, even this church is kind of like this. Uh, you've been to churches that have tall steeples I've spent some time in, in Europe and gone in, that, one of my favorite things is walking through old cathedrals. And all the architecture is designed to do one thing, to draw your eye up. So constantly, you, get, you walk out of a cathedral and your neck hurts. You're constantly looking up, you're like, oh, look at that, look at that, wow, it's just, the architecture is so stunning. It's all designed to draw the eye up because the belief was this, heaven is above and earth below. And so you look up to see heaven. <laughs> The Eastern Orthodox tradition is a little bit different. The way that they designed their churches uh, were not with steeples or with tall, soaring structures, but in dome shapes. The message of that architecture is that heaven is not up above us, but it's all around us. The Greek word for heaven is the same as the Greek word for air. It's accessible. When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom is at hand. In other words, you can reach for it and attain it. Just like I think about, you know, what's the worst is when you get into bed and, and you get thirsty and there's no glass of water. <laughs> and you're like, can you go get me a glass of water? 
<laughs> um, I think about being thirsty and getting in the bed and there being a glass of water there. The kingdom is at hand like the water is at hand. You just have to reach out. This is the aim of every believer, that we would have eyes to see what God is doing around us and we would reach for the things that God has promised would happen in our time and in our place. One of the words that we got for our church is that um, we would gather a harvest that we didn't work for. Strange word, especially not very, you know, you're like, there's already a lot of churches that work for a lot of stuff. I don't know that we need to be gathering their harvest, Lord. But he said it. You're going to gather a harvest that you didn't work for. And then he said this, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I think for many, the way that we see the church in our current day is the harvest is barely there, and we have a lot of workers. (laughs) But he didn't say that. Jesus is the desire of the nations, and so it's every believer's great privilege to, as they reach out for heaven in their own life, to put on display what it looks like to be fully alive to those who are longing for life, longing to know a king like Jesus. What signs are you seeing of his intention in your life? He's looking for a prophetic people, and I think he's found one here. Secondly, I believe that he's looking for people who didn't dis- don't despise small beginnings, just like the Magi with the baby. They didn't despise the smallness of, of the moment. I've actually, I've been to Bethlehem and seen what scholars believe could have been the structure where Mary and Joseph had the baby Jesus, and it's essentially like a shepherd's cave, and it's nothing spectacular. They didn't despise it. In fact, they were overjoyed when they saw him. And they fell down and they worshiped him. I, I feel like there's a word for our church and, and just for us, especially for young people in particular, it is difficult for God to use someone who needs their involvement in the kingdom to be noticed. It's difficult for God to use someone who needs their ministry to include a large platform or to be full of fame or recognition or, or big. It isn't that God doesn't care about greatness. We talk about this all the time. God deeply cares about greatness. The greatness of his children reveal the greatness of the creator. Just like an artist's painting reveals the greatness of the artist. We believe that. But he's looking for partnership. I remember learning this lesson uh, five or six years ago that the Lord told me, he said, you know, you don't build a life and then invite me to bless the life. You submit yourself to me and I give you the life that I have for you. It's a very different way of doing things. It's in one way you say, God, I'm, very, I, I'm building this project. I'm building this thing. I have this idea I want to do. And, and I, I want to just run it by you. <laughs> He's like, okay, signing off. It, it, the other way is, is far more of a relational exercise of life, of just saying, God, my whole life is yours. Would you direct me where you want me to go? You will find that um, so long as you remain obedient, you never put on a heavy yoke. It, it's so amazing to me. I, um, I, I've, I've walked with many different pastors and friends through this year, and everybody says 2020 is the worst ever. It's so horrible. I was just hanging out with some friends of mine this past week, and they're just like, we just like, this was, we got rocked. Our, our metric for success this year is just survive. And um, Jesus says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And so if you find on yourself a yoke that isn't easy or isn't light, it may not be his yoke. So the key to, walk, to, to life, the key to living, 
is to stay in step in obedience with a good father who knows how to partner with you. The yoke, I don't know if you guys know this, but the yoke is a two oxen instrument, not a one oxen instrument. And so oftentimes when we take emotional responsibility for things that he hasn't given us responsibility for, from what we read in our feed, from what's going on in that town over there, from this specific political issue, when we take responsibility for those things and not the things that he's actually given to us, we could potentially be leaving his yoke and taking on our own. So he's looking for this partnership with people who, who, who can say yes to him every day. They don't, they don't have a preconceived idea of what they need to do and where they need to go and how big it should be and what it should look like. They just say, God, my whole life is wrapped up in simply giving you my yes. So today is all I have, so, so yes. The problem is, is that if ministry or service needs to be important or big for someone to be involved in it, they may constantly be looking for the right opportunity when they've just ignored the small sign or the baby's potential just in front of them. The Magi rejoiced at the baby. Often, um, often the prophetic starts as a seed. You know what a seed is? It's like, I could throw this away or I could plant it. I could ignore this or I could give it a lot of attention. And that is what makes all the difference right there. Revival is actually like this. Revival isn't something that you drum up and you're like, I have this great idea and we're gonna do great stuff. Revival is often the result of small things being cherished and planted deeply in a people. Oh, I noticed when you shared with that person, you shepherded them so well. I just wanna celebrate that. That's so beautiful. That's like you're renewing their heart when you do that. I think of, where's Mariah? Mariah's somewhere around here. Um, is she here? She's in the nursery and she's taking care of my kid. Okay, thanks, Mariah. Well, I'll honor her anyways. Um, a couple weeks ago at pre-gathering prayer, uh, Mariah had a name come to mind and a, and a word for that person's name. And she says, here's the name. And it was kind of an obscure name. And just so happened, there was a girl sitting right in front of her with that same name. And she's like, okay, maybe it's for you. And she shares it. It was totally for this gal, really touched her heart. And that right there, what is that? That's revival. See, if you think of revival only as one thing, big stage, big tent, lots of people, the whole thing, well, it may eventually become that, but where revival starts is by cherishing the small moments of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and saying right there, I'm not gonna ignore the small beginning. I'll cherish that and I'm gonna plant that deep so that it produces the kingdom in my life. Now, after the joy, after being overjoyed, they bring him treasure. This is the second lesson of the Magi. They bring him treasure. All real encounters with God produce a physical response. <laughs> You're like, really? Yes. All real encounters with God produce a physical response, a gratitude, a humility, a generosity, treasure. The second response of the wise men was to bring gifts, physical representations of value for King Jesus. That's what a gift is. It's, it's a physical representation of the relationship that you have with somebody. It's a physical representation of the honor that you place on someone. And uh, here's a relief from the Byzantine, Byzantine era of the Magi bringing gifts. And I just like this. This is really just cool looking of what it maybe could have looked like with these very finely dressed, uh, probably men of very high status in their society, bringing these gifts gifts to King Jesus. And I love how the ESV puts, puts it. Then opening their treasures, they gave him gifts. It's almost like a treasure trope. Then opening their treasures, they gave him gifts out of their abundance. 
And this is really the lasting impact of the Magi. They are known for bringing gifts to Jesus. Some scholars even speculate that a family as poor as Jesus' family was could not have afforded their trip to Egypt, as they take a trip to Egypt, in case you're wondering right after this, they couldn't have been able to afford that, and that these gifts actually went to help fund that flight to Egypt, that escape to Egypt. Either way, here's the message of Christmas. Surplus has entered the world so we can afford to give our treasure to him. (laughs) Surplus has entered the world I no longer lack. I can afford to give my treasure to him. Um, This one's for Chris Sharp and also Chad, engineers in the house. And I hope I'm right about this. You might have to correct me after this. But we learn from the laws of thermodynamics that for an object to move, it must be acted upon by a force, right? Kind of. Okay, go with me. I would argue, I mean, but, but there's a, the unmovable mover, that whole thing. For things to be in motion, there has to be something that acted upon it for it to be in motion. Physics. Physics. Uh, um, I never took your class and never will. Uh, I would argue, for generosity and love to exist, there must have been a first lover a first love force, a first grace in the world. And this is actually what the scriptures teach us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I want to put forth to you this evening that we give gifts at Christmas time all these years later in response to his first gift of his life. He was the first love sent into the world, the first gift sent into the world that inspires generosity all these years later. Recently, um, an individual in my life showed me just unreasonable generosity. Have you ever been given a gift that um, there's just no possible way in the, for the rest of your life you could never pay back? This person gave me this really great gift, and I, I, I catch myself even thinking the past couple days, why did they do that? Like, I'm like, I'm thinking about all the, the, the things that they gave me and, the, and just the generosity. I'm going, why would they do that to me? It was so ridiculous. Why? I don't deserve this. And every time I think, why did they do that? This feeling rises up in me. I gotta give. I got to be generous. I've been so filled with a surplus, I have something to give. It's almost like this person placed a value on me that I didn't even have for myself. I almost see myself differently after the generosity. And that's what a good gift does. A good gift recognizes who someone is, even when they may not see it or the people around them may not see it. Do you remember the three gifts that the wise men give? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. There are um, some scholars who believe that these three gifts had spiritual or life significance. Gold represents the symbol of kingship on earth, the most valuable precious metal. Frankincense was an incense that would have been burned to a deity. And myrrh was an embalming oil and was the symbol of death. Jesus, king on earth, gold. Fully God, frankincense going to die, myrrh. 
the gifts said something about who he was. The gifts said something, they recognized something about the Messiah. In the kingdom, the best lived lives are the ones that give to Jesus in proportion to who Jesus is. <laughs> okay. In the kingdom, the best lived lives are the ones that give to Jesus in proportion to who he is, in proportion to what he has been. So who is Jesus? He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. Jesus shows us how to live. He gives us our authority back. All authority has been given to me, therefore go. He endures separation from God and physical pain for our sake and for the penalty of sin. He gives us his own personal spirit, breathing on them in an act of new creation. So the only gift, what, what gift would make sense to give him back? For all of that, all that he is, the only gift that could possibly make sense is the gift of our entire life. The gift of our lives. Oh Lord, my life is yours. I put you first in my time. I put you first in my money. I put you first in my body. I put you first in my life pursuit. At Christmas, we were reminded that we make him our treasure because he has made us his treasure. Jesus talked about treasure in Matthew 13. Here's what he said. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price, I gotta go over here, <laughs> went and sold all that he had and bought it. There's a principle in the kingdom and it's this, in the kingdom you always get more than what you pay for. You cannot give more to God, then he will give to you. So we want to give all. When we think of who he is, making us his treasure, we want to give all to receive all that he has for us. And what this does, when you have a life that is focused like this, it just says, I mean, think about the metaphors that are presented there. All that you have to live on for you. All that I have for you. When you do that, what it does is it creates purity of heart. When you surrender, that's the Bible word for it, when you surrender your life over to God and you say, all that I am is yours, you're my king, what it develops in you is actually purity of heart. And this is what Matthew 5, 8 says about purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. <laughs> Do you want to see him? Give to him. <laughs> you want to see him? Surrender to him. To end, my hope for us in this season is to develop, to develop a purity of heart. Purity of heart is developed through single-mindedness. That focus, I'm gonna give my life to you. I'm not giving my life to anything else. And when those things vie for my life attention, I will recognize it and I will, I will repent and bring my mind and my heart and my intentions back into alignment with you. 
That single-mindedness is the spirit of those high-ranking magicians and astrologers who are filled with joy at the presence of God and giving treasure to him. That's that single-mindedness. For Saint Hill specifically, purity of heart will be the result of a life honoring Jesus and following the prophetic. It's I'm looking for, I'm not, I, I don't, I, you know what Paul says, he says, you know, I can't afford to have a life like a civilian, I cannot be distracted by these civilian affairs. My life is owned. And so all of my focus is on what is God doing here in this place? What is he up to in my heart? What is he doing through this group of people? Who, is, who around me are you working in, God, that I might honor them for what you're doing in their life? I know this guy um, who is very wealthy and he has every earthly treasure that somebody could want. Literally, like, Everything, private jet, homes all over the place. Very, very wealthy person. And I was having a conversation with him recently and and do you know what brought tears to his eyes? He was just talking about the love of God in his life. Just talking about God's grace on his life. And he told me this, he said, Alex, the abundant Christian life is simple. Give him all. So what will you give him this Christmas? What kind of gift does this king deserve? Let's all stand together. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. Fire!